If you would please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 18. This morning we are going to consider uh, just the first 15 verses of Genesis chapter 18. So we'll be looking uh, to Genesis 18 verses 1 through 15. Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says this. Now the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. When he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. Please let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a piece of bread that you may refresh yourselves. After that you may go on, since you have visited your servant. And they said, So do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, Quickly, prepare three measures of fine flour, knead it, and make bread cakes. Abraham also ran to the herd and took a tender and choice calf and gave it to the servant, and he hurried to prepare it. He took curds and milk and the calf which he had prepared and placed it before them. And he was standing by them under the tree as they ate. Then they said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, They are in the tent. He said, I will surely return to you at this time next year, and behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age, and Sarah was past childbearing. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. Now, as we consider these 15 verses this morning, we will do so under two main headings. First of all, hospitality illustrated, and secondly, the faith of Sarah. Hospitality illustrated, and the faith of Sarah. Now, as the chapter opens, we see these three men approaching the tent of Abraham. Abraham's tent was near the Oaks of Mamre, where we have seen him dwelling before, back in chapter 13 and chapter 14. And, of course, as the chapter goes on, it makes clear to us that these men were not just men. Judging from what follows here in chapter 18 and later what we see in chapter 19, two of these men are actually angels, the angels who brought Lot and his family out of Sodom. And the third, so far as we can tell, is the Lord himself. I would say likely the pre-incarnate Son of God. But as the events of chapter 18 and chapter 19 were yet future to Abraham, he sees what he thought were three men. 
and assumes them to be men. He did not yet know that they were angels and the Lord himself. So Abram is sitting there in the door of his tent in the heat of the day, taking a rest. This probably would have been the custom given the climate in that area. And he sees these men coming to him, and all at once he springs into action. He greets them. He bows to them out of respect and invites them to stay with him and receive some water for the washing of their feet and a piece of bread. These men agree to be Abraham's guests, and Abraham rushes to serve them. He has Sarah prepare three measures of fine flour for the bread cakes and chooses a a choice calf to slaughter and uh, has his servant prepare it. And this would have been quite a, a delicacy since meat was not often eaten at every meal in that time and place. And then Abraham also gives them curds and milk along with the calf. And then he stands there uh, as they eat. And we see all of that in the, the first eight verses. But what we learn in the New Testament, however, is that this is not just an interesting history of the way in which Abraham received and entertained these whom he thought to be men. But rather, what we find is that This example of Abraham here in verses 1 through 8 becomes a paradigm for how actually we as New Testament Christians are to practice hospitality. And so we find in Hebrews 13 too the command which says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Now it seems that the historical situations that the writer to the Hebrews has in mind is at least that of Abraham here in Genesis 18 and that of Lot in Genesis 19 when Lot received the angels in Sodom. Now there could potentially be some other examples in the Old Testament, but it seems likely that he's looking back at least here to Genesis 18 and Genesis 19 to how Abraham and Lot received these angels and entertained them. And so looking back to this example then in in the text of Genesis, the writer to the Hebrews says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Now I think there is a a certain sense in which that uh, modern translation of Hebrews 13.2, you see see it similar in the English Standard Version and also in the New American Standard, uh, this idea of showing hospitality to strangers. There's a sense in which that's helpful and a sense in which it may not be quite as helpful. A more literal rendering of the phrase is captured by the Holman Christian Standard, which translated it as, do not neglect to show hospitality. And the reason why some of our translations prefer to expand it by saying, show hospitality to strangers, is that they're actually attempting to clarify what is meant by the word hospitality itself. The word that we translate into English as hospitality is a compound word which combines the word for love and the word for stranger, such that the word as a whole means love of strangers. And so when some of those translations say show hospitality to strangers, they're simply making more explicit the the stranger aspect of the word which would otherwise be buried in our English word hospitality. But really, every time we see the word hospitality in the New Testament, we need to be thinking of this idea of love of strangers. You've heard of xenophobia, the fear of strangers. The word in Hebrews 13.2 is philozenias, love, philozenias, strangers, the love of strangers. 
And the, the New Testament gives us some specific commands in regards to hospitality. There's that of Hebrews 13.2, which points back to Genesis 18. And then uh, 1 Timothy 3.2 and Titus 1.8, there is the requirement that the elders, overseers in the church, must demonstrate hospitality. Then there's passages like uh, Romans 12.13, which we read together this morning, where believers are commanded to contribute to the needs of the saints and to practice hospitality. Likewise, 1 Peter 4.9 says, Be hospitable to one another without complaint. And so the point is that hospitality is an important characteristic for Christians to manifest. It was certainly important in the first century and would have been uh, very much the case for an elder or an overseer in the church. If we think back to the time of the first century, there were not nearly so many accommodations for travelers in the ancient world as there are now. And likely, many of the ones that did exist would have been establishments of questionable reputation. Christians who were traveling for the purposes of ministry or who were traveling due to persecution or for other reasons would have stood in need of someone who could take them in for a night and could provide them with a meal while they were in transit to some other place. Or if they were moving, immigrating from one town to another, they would have stood in need of a place to stay so that they could get started and get introduced and set up there in town. And I think we see some hints of this culture of hospitality among the early believers in, uh, in places like 2 John and 3 John. In 2 John, the apostle warns the church uh, to whom he is writing against taking in false heretical teachers. He warns against taking them in and supporting them in any way. He's, he says to them, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, in other words, the faithful teaching about Christ, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. In our context, this would be the, the rough equivalent of giving room and board to Mormon missionaries or Jehovah's Witnesses or something like that, taking them in and feeding them, supporting them, essentially giving them fuel to continue doing the bad work that they're doing. And so John warns against extending hospitality to false heretical teachers. But then, on the other hand, in the book of 3 John, John encourages Gaius in extending godly hospitality to those who were actually out doing the right kind of thing. And so in 2 John, uh, or excuse me, 3 John, verses 5 and 6, he says that Gaius was acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they are strangers. And they have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. And then in 3 John verses 9 and 10, John calls out that church leader Diotrephes for his ungodly lack of hospitality and his ungodly exercise of church discipline against those who did extend hospitality to fellow Christians. And John says, for this reason, if I come... I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words, and not satisfied with this, he himself does not receive the brethren either, and he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. And so Diotrephes wasn't going to receive, to receive these, uh, these strangers who were fellow Christians, and Diotrephes was actually executing church discipline upon those who were receiving these traveling Christian brethren. And so... The culture there was somewhat 
different than ours, but nevertheless, overseers and all Christians must be hospitable. This is something which is binding upon all believers. And we have the example set here for us with Abraham. Abraham saw these men, those whom he thought to be men, out in the heat of the day, and he wanted to do what he could to alleviate the burden of their travels. He provided them water for their feet to be washed, which was a common act of hospitality given, given the culture and the, the uh, geographical setting and situation. And then you'll notice in the text that Abraham speaks modestly in terms of what he's going to do and what he's going to provide, but yet he actually provides lavishly. He says in verse 5, I will bring a piece of bread that you may refresh yourselves. Makes it sound rather small, but then when he goes to Sarah, he tells her to take three measures, three seahs of fine flour and to make bread from that. Altogether, three seahs of fine flour would be maybe a little bit more than a bushel in our terms. This is going to be plenty of bread for, for three people. And so I imagine whatever was left over, Abraham used for himself and his household so as not to let it go to waste. And then, in addition to the bread, he, of course, selects that choice and tender calf. He gives his guests curds and milk. He speaks modestly but provides lavishly. And you and I, then, are commanded to imitate his hospitality, his practical love of strangers, and to care for them. Obviously, this requires wisdom, and the command is going to be carried out differently by different believers. The way in which New Testament Christians who owned homes and property could exercise hospitality would be a lot different from those who were Christian slaves in the New Testament time period. Philemon's hospitality is going to look a lot different than the hospitality of Onesimus, if that makes sense. But still, all were commanded to exercise hospitality, this love for strangers. Calvin commented on Abraham's conduct in Genesis 18 by saying, He sees them wearied with their journey and has no doubt that they were overcome by heat. He considers that the time of the day was becoming dangerous to travelers and therefore he wishes both to comfort and relieve the persons thus oppressed. And certainly the sense of nature itself dictates that strangers are to be specially assisted, for none are more deserving of compassion and help than those whom we see deprived of friends and of domestic comforts. And therefore the right of hospitality has been held most sacred among all people, and no disgrace was ever more detestable than to be called inhospitable. For it is a brutal cruelty, proudly to despise those who, being destitute of ordinary protection, have recourse to our assistance. There's this idea that those who are strangers, who are away from their home in new settings and circumstances, need those who can reach out to them in love and provide for them. And then Calvin went on to bemoan the present state of affairs in his own day and uh, seemingly frowned upon the prevailing sinfulness of mankind that made hospitality somewhat dangerous. He said, speaking of Abraham's time, he said, At that time there was greater honesty than is at present to be found amid the prevailing sinfulness of mankind, so that the right of hospitality might be exercised with less danger. 
Therefore, the great number of inns are evidence of our depravity and prove it to have arisen from our own fault that the principal duty of humanity has become obsolete among us. And I think we can understand a little bit of what Calvin was getting at there, even if we might not agree wholeheartedly with his conclusion. In order to exercise hospitality, there has to be a level of trust among both the host and the guest. A guest is trusting that his host is not going to rob him or kill him or whatever. And on the flip side, a host has to be able to have a similar kind of trust in his guest. And if, and if there's not mutual trust, then hospitality is, is, not, is not going to work out too well. I can remember uh, my grandmother telling me a story about when she was a girl in Arkansas and that a man showed up at their farm out in the country on a snowy winter night and was looking for a place to stay. And apparently there was something either about the stranger or the context of the situation that made my great-grandfather a little bit nervous. And so I guess ordinarily he might have invited a stranger into his home, but under the circumstances he said, well, you can, you can sleep in the barn if you want. And you see the situation. On the one hand, he wanted to extend some kindness to the stranger, but on the other hand, he's responsible not to put himself or his family in harm's way. So we have to be wise and thoughtful when we're interacting with strangers. And so I don't think that this commandment in regard to hospitality obligates us to do everything possible for every stranger whom we happen to meet, but still, the duty of hospitality remains. And so, let's think about this. How should we do it? What should hospitality look like in our time and place? Well, I'll start by giving an example of the way in which someone once demonstrated hospitality to me. Years ago, before I was married, I was traveling far from home. I was in a large city on a Sunday. I had looked up a church uh, to go to, and so I went. And after the service, a middle-aged woman came up to me and said, you'll go to our house for dinner today. And so she and her husband took me to their home for, for Sunday dinner. I spent the afternoon with their family, came back to church for the evening service. And to me, at least, what this family did for me is such an example of Christian hospitality, this love of strangers. I was a complete, total stranger to them that day, but they came up to me that Sunday, took me home with them, and loved me in a tangible way. And... So what should it look like then in your life? Well, again, much is dependent on your circumstances. Again, the hospitality of Onesimus is going to look different than the hospitality of Philemon. It's going to look different depending on our circumstances. Let me speak, first of all, to children in this regard. I know that we've been speaking much about loving strangers, but the old saying for children is actually helpful. Stranger, danger. Obviously, we understand that not all strangers are dangerous, but some of them are. That's, that's what we've been talking about, is that you have to have a level of trust in order to establish hospitality. And as a child, for your own safety, you need to make sure that you're being careful around people that you don't know and that your family doesn't know. And you shouldn't be spending time with people whom your mom and dad don't know or uh, be around them if they haven't explicitly said that it's all right for you to be around them. You need to honor and obey your parents in your involvement with strangers. For some of us who are grown up, this might mean that we need to be willing to 
open up our homes to church visitors, to have them over for a meal. And this could apply whether the persons are new to the area and uh, are looking for a church or whether maybe they're here for, for work for a week or for a month or for a summer. Due to our location, we have a lot of people who pass through these walls uh, who have come to the area either for vacation or for work or for internships or for various reasons. And it's a great blessing to have folks in these circumstances come here to worship with us. And we want to be a place where fellow Christians feel loved and welcomed in our midst. And some of us may not be in a position to have someone over to our home, but we can certainly show hospitality in other ways, even by the way we interact with them. We can greet our guests. We can offer them a bulletin. We can engage in conversation with them to the degree that they are comfortable in doing so. And if you're not able to invite a visitor over to your home for a meal, you might be able to see if they could meet up for a meal sometime during the week or during the time that they are in the area. For some of us, though, showing hospitality may mean that we open our homes, not only for a meal, but also in the sense of allowing someone to stay with us. Now, I'm not speaking of driving into the city and picking up a random someone off the street and bringing them into your home. That's not, that's not what I'm talking about. But what I am saying is that sometimes it may come to our notice that a missionary is traveling or speaking in the area and is in need of accommodations as they pass through. Or it may come to our attention through the broader Christian community that an individual is coming to the area for medical treatment or something of that nature and that they and their family may need some short-term accommodations. Now, some of us might be in a place where we're able to invite them into our homes uh, for some or all of that duration. And even if not, we might be able to, to help them with some of the logistics of their circumstances or to contribute uh, financially to helping them to obtain some suitable accommodations. And on a much more mundane level, one way that we can be hospitable is in the use of our church parking lot. Right now this morning there are two vehicles that are in our parking lot that belong to people who are not in church today. One belongs to a missionary who contacted me this week to say that he and his family were flying out of BWI to Colorado and would be gone for a week and a half and asked to park here to save money. And I said yes. The other car belongs to a pastor's wife who lives in Virginia. She has parked here a number of times over the years as she has flown out to visit her family. I got a call from her last week that her mom had recently died, and she's going out uh, to be with her family, and so her car is here. It's not much, but this is a way of contributing to the needs of saints. I don't think it's reasonable to offer our parking lot to every Christian who flies in and out of BWI, but we can certainly allow some to use it. And thankfully, when our parking lot is too full for all of us to be here, we do have an agreement with the daycare across the street that we can park across the street for overflow parking on Sundays. Taking a few dozen extra steps on a Sunday morning is, at least for many of us, a rather small thing to do to exhibit hospitality. The Word of God commands us, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for by this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. And that brings us then to our second point for this morning, which is the faith of Sarah. Now, the faith of Sarah, I suppose, is like the faith of many of us. A faith that was mixed with doubting and fear and irreverence. 
Here in Genesis 18, we see the doubting and the fear and the irreverence. And specifically, we see that in verses 9 through 15. In verse 10, the Lord reiterates to Abraham the promise that he had given back in chapter 17, verse 21, that Sarah would have a son next year. And now, Sarah herself hears that promise firsthand. She was uh, inside the tent, listening through the tent door, and she hears the promise. But she knew, as uh, we see there in verse 11, she knew the truth of her situation. Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past the age of childbearing. Sarah knew that, and that's why she reacted as she did in verse 12. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also. Now there is obviously much that is wrong here in regard to Sarah, and we'll speak to that. But at the same time, there is something here in verse 12 that is right and exemplary also. And the Apostle Peter makes mention of it in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, when Peter says that in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Peter says that Sarah called Abraham Lord. And this is the place, the one place in the Old Testament narrative where that happens. Genesis 18.12. Sarah here is an example of holy femininity in this respect, demonstrating her submission and obedience to her husband by calling him Lord. And Peter holds her up as an example to Christian wives. Now, I realize this is not popular, and many call it patriarchal, oppressive, and worse, but this is not my idea. This is what the Scripture says. This is the Word of God, and we must submit to it, receive it, and reverence it as such. And it is interesting, though, when we think about it, that Peter uses this episode in Sarah's life and holds her up as an example. And as he speaks of an entire group of holy women who hoped in God, he brings forward Sarah as an example. And yet, when we look at the context, Genesis 18:12, where Sarah called Abraham Lord, and we look at that verse and see what's going on in the context, we see that this is not a particularly great moment in Sarah's life, but rather that this was a moment of weakness and of sin. And I think this just goes to show the point that Sarah's faith was one that was mixed with doubting and fear and irreverence. On the one hand, she's a holy woman who hoped in God and sets an example to Christian wives. And on that same hand, Hebrews 11.11, which our brother Stan read for us, tells us that by faith, even Sarah herself received the ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life since she considered him faithful who had promised... But then there's the other hand, right? There's, there's a good hand, there's the other hand, in which we see her inward laughter, in which she seems to doubt the promise of the Lord that she would have a son, in which we see her lying to the Lord when the Lord asked, why did Sarah laugh? And she denied it by saying, I did not laugh. Sarah was, I think, in so many ways, an example of what we ought to be, 
an example of what we ought not to be, and actually an example of what we are. In regard to what we ought to be, she hoped in God. She was holy. She submitted to her husband and honored him. She had faith in considering God who had promised to be faithful and then by faith was enabled to conceive. All of this is good. All of this is praiseworthy. And all of this is worthy of our imitation. And so in light of that, let's imitate her. Let's trust the Lord. Trust his promises that are given to us in his word. Let's consider him faithful because he is. Let's set our hope in God. Let's believe the promises of God, that God has promised a Savior to send into the world. That's what he was promising here in the Old Testament times and his promises to Abraham, that Abraham would be a blessing to all nations. And God has fulfilled that promise by sending us a Savior, his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. And of course, Jesus went to the cross and died for sinners, taking upon himself the wrath of God, which we deserved, and rising again on the third day, showing that the sacrifice had been paid, that God the Father fully approved of what Christ has done. And this good news of Jesus Christ is that all who come to him in faith and repentance will be saved from the eternal judgment that we deserve because of our sins. And we will inherit eternal life as the free gift of God. And so we must imitate Sarah in in trusting God in her faith. We must imitate Sarah by trusting that this same God who made promises and kept them is the same God who has made promises to us as his people in Christ and will keep them. We are to hope in this same God as she did, which is to say we are to place our confident expectation in him in regard to the things which he has promised to those who love him. We must likewise imitate Sarah's holy conduct Wives must imitate her godly approach in her relationship with her husband. But again, Sarah is also an example of what we ought not to be. She demonstrated a lack of faith. It's helpful to note, though, that Sarah didn't do this as a scoffer or as a reprobate. As Calvin put it, she found the situation strange and laughed at that. Right? There she is, past the age of childbearing. And she hears firsthand from the Lord that she's going to bear a son. And she laughs internally, not because she's a scoffer or a reprobate or a complete ungodly woman who has no reverence for the Lord. But this is just, this is just so odd. This is just so outside of the box, as we would say. And that is why she laughed. And Therefore, the Lord reproves her in verse 14 by that rhetorical question, is anything too difficult for the Lord? Of course not. Nothing is too difficult for the Lord, not even bringing a child into the world through an old man and an old woman. And I think that's a helpful line of approach as we think about Sarah's laughter here and her lack of faith in this regard. On the one hand, she's a holy woman who hoped in God, not an unbelieving scoffer, but She found the situation strange, and she disparaged God's infinite power. As Matthew Henry expressed it, the objections of sense are very likely to stumble and puzzle the weak faith even of true believers. Even where there is true faith, yet there are often sore conflicts with unbelief. True faith and unbelief sometimes are mixed and mingled in the same person. I think that was the case with Sarah. 
her unbelief and her weakness and her attempt to save face before the Lord by denying that she had laughed are in no way praiseworthy. They're in no way held up for our imitation. But let's be honest, how often do we imitate her? Even as those who were born again and made new in Christ, how often do we fail to believe what God has revealed in his word? How often do we fail to take God at his word when he has told us good things in his law concerning what is good and pleasing to him? How often do we fail to trust the Lord's promises that he has given to us in the gospel? How often do we, in fact, think that indeed some things are too difficult for the Lord? God can do many things, but not not that. What we see in Sarah is not exemplary in these regards, but it should cause us to take heart when we see in ourselves that same kind of, of odd mixture that was present in her. We see her weakness and her sins, but yet the grace of God was, was greater than her sins. God strengthened her in her weakness of faith so that she was, by faith, enabled to conceive seed. And she moved forward from laughing at the word of God to considering him faithful who had made the promise to her. And we also need to learn here from Sarah that we need to be careful as we form our estimation of others. It can be easy sometimes to see the weakness of others and see the great gaps that exist between what they profess to believe and what they actually put into practice. And let's be honest for a moment, aren't the weaknesses of others, the, their faults and sins, often the easiest things for us to see? And then from the weaknesses of others and their faults and sins, we make a conclusion about the state of their heart. Sometimes it's easy to judge someone by their worst moment and then form some long and overarching conclusions on that basis. Just think about Job's wife, right? We have one soundbite from Job's wife in the whole Bible, probably, if not on the absolute worst day of her life, certainly during the worst season of her life. She says to Job, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. That's, that's all we've got from Job's wife in the whole Bible. And as a general rule, we don't often think too highly of her. But she may have actually been a much better woman than she appeared to be on one of the worst days of her life. Job said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. And when Job said that, he almost seems to indicate that she was not speaking like herself. He didn't say, here you go again, this is is business as usual. He said, you're speaking like one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we receive hardship from the Lord and not what is good? She may have been a far better woman in general than that one soundbite would suggest. And so before we conclude that she is an ungodly and reprobate woman, we need to ask whether we would want to be judged for all of history by the words that we spoke in our darkest hour. Probably not, right? We probably wouldn't want others to think that of us. And likewise, when we consider Sarah here in Genesis 18, this might not have been the darkest hour of her life, but she was hearing these words of the Lord making a promise which contradicted what she understood about nature in general and her own physical abilities. And so she laughed to herself, and then she tried to cover her tracks with a lie when she was confronted by the Lord. 
But again, the grace of God was greater than her sin. And she was strengthened in faith by God, such as she received the ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, because she considered him faithful who had promised. And the wonderful news of the gospel is that this same God who was so gracious to Sarah and so patient with her, who strengthened her in faith and in hope, will also be gracious and patient with all who come to him through his Son, Jesus Christ. How wonderful is it that the Lord covers his people with grace and with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, even though the Lord sees the most heinous sins of his people in the pure light of his holy inspection, and yet he forgives, he cleanses, and restores. And so we must look to Sarah so that we may imitate her and what she did right, so that we may avoid her unbelief and irreverence, and so that we may keep walking with the Lord and trusting in him, even when we are weak and even when we fall and fail. In those moments, let the words of Micah 7-8 be the cry of our hearts, where we read there, Do not rejoice over me, O my enemy. Though I fall, I will rise. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. Let's take comfort from the words of Psalm 145, 19, where we read, He will fulfill the desire of those who fear Him. If we truly fear the Lord, if we truly reverence Him, then our desires are going to be godly desires that are in line with His will. And He will fulfill those desires such that we too are strengthened in the faith and equipped for every good work which the Lord has for us to do. And so may our Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father comfort and strengthen our hearts for every good work and word. And may all praise and glory return to him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your work in the life of Sarah. And we see in her so much of ourselves. And we recognize that this is unfortunate. But we also recognize that you are great and merciful, and that you are gracious. And Lord, we pray that you would give us hearts that continually submit to you and are brought to greater and greater faith. We pray that you'd strengthen us, that you'd equip us for doing good, serving you in this world. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.